1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18. You can turn there in your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there ought to be one in the row in front, somewhere in the row in front of you. You can use that this morning as we continue looking at Israel's history in the beginning of the kings. We've, we're in the reign of Saul, but we are beginning to see his decline and the success of David. So if you were to look at it on a graph, really, David is going this way and Saul is going down and they're crisscrossing. Um, just to give you a little um, reasoning why we, or how we look at the Old Testament here at Hope, we, we study the Old Testament because the Old Testament is, is our story. It's not just an Israelite story. It's, it's our story. It's the people of God. And as we read the Old Testament, we look at it in light of what Christ has done and what we are anticipating to come in the Old Testament. We're looking forward to, to Christ. And every story is whispering this coming king, whispering his name. And so we're going to see, we're going to look for Christ in this passage, and we, and we do that in every passage, because he said in, 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 in Luke chapter 24 that, that the whole Bible points to him. It's all about him. And so that's how we read the Old Testament. We look, we look at it with that lens of Jesus, how it points to our need for him and how he has fulfilled that need. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's words, and we're going to read all of chapter 18 together. If you aren't able to stand, you can remain seated. I know it's a little bit lengthy. This is God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I 
And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let, her, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. And now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him the daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you bless the, the preaching of it? Father, give me strength. Use uh, my weakness for your glory. Would you open our ears, open our hearts to hear your word and to see better the promises of God in it for us. Father, change us, transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what do we mean by the providence of God? Well, if you return to page six in your bulletin, we just defined it, didn't we, in our confession of faith this morning. Heidelberg puts it very plainly, puts it very well. The providence of God is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds us with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain drought, fruitful years, lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance from his fatherly hand. So it's God's power, that's what providence is, but it's also his guidance by his fatherly hand, all of creation. And this is actually um, an amazing reality, isn't it? That we live in a world that is not governed, as Steve was saying, it's not governed by chance, it's not not by accident that we are here. It's not, we live our lives uh, and we live in this world not as if God just began things, initiated, if you believe in creation, that he created all things, but he didn't just leave it to sort of run its own course, but he controls every inch of his world. He's sovereign over all things. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch Reformed theologian, once said that there is not a square inch of the universe where God doesn't say, mine. It's his. He controls it. And Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, Charles Spurgeon is famous for saying that even the, 
the dust that is floating around this room is controlled by God's providence. It's controlled by Him. It's an amazing reality that we live in a world that is under the complete control of our wise, powerful, and good God. We didn't recite it this morning, but the Heidelberg Catechism has a follow-up question to question 27, and it says, well, how does knowing about this providence help us practically? How does it help us to know about his providence? And it says that we can be patient when things go against us. We can be thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. That includes us. So we can be patient. We can be thankful. And that is really what we're seeing in chapter 18, aren't we? Of 1 Samuel, that David is thankful of the good things that are happening in, this, in, this, in his life right now. But he's patient as well with the difficult things. Because as the good things are occurring, he's also experiencing bad things at the same time. And so this is a great example of him learning about and and dwelling in the providence of God for him. That God is providing for David the friend he will need in Jonathan. We see that. We see that he's providing the wife he'll need in McCall and the general support and love of the Israelite people. But at the same time, God is providing the opposition he's experiencing in Saul, isn't he? He's, he's, God is providing that as well. Why? To grow David's dependence upon God. And all of which reminds David of his main provision and our main provision, which is the presence of God. So we see in this morning, this text, that God provides for us. He protects us and he draws near to us in his providence. So we're going to look at providence in three lenses. We're going to look at the providence of friendship, the providence of opposition, and the providence of the presence of God. Those are the three main ideas we're looking at this morning as we look at the life of David. First, let's look at the the providence of friendship. Look at verse 1. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, so that's David. David was speaking with Saul. This is right after he's killed Goliath. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan has shown up throughout 1 Samuel. Oh, we know he's a warrior. We know he uh, is a godly man. We know that he's had tension with his father. As his father has been unfaithful, Jonathan has been faithful. He holds the glory of God to the highest esteem in his life. And so in verse 1, we see that Jonathan, after David kills Goliath, Jonathan has great admiration for David because what David did was great and courageous and relying upon the Lord. And we see that Jonathan had that same admiration for the Lord. And we see that their souls were knit together. See, this is one of the most classic texts in our Bible of friendship. This is the classic friendship text between David and Jonathan. We're going to talk a little bit about the providence of friendship. And Maybe it's surprising if I say this, but maybe not, that I think good friendships are rare today. I think we struggle with friendship more than we ever have as a culture. You know, one of the greatest dangers most people are facing today, health-wise, is pervasive loneliness in their lives. As 21st century people who live in the suburban world 
with our garages. We, we're not hanging out on the front porch anymore. We're, we're inside watching TV more. We're lonely. Uh, one uh, research has shown that loneliness is associated with a lot of health risks, including cardiovascular disease and cor- coronary heart disease and stroke, metabolic syndrome, functional disability, dementia, and mild cognitive impairment. That's what, that's what we're seeing now, that loneliness is causing health issues. And you know, you may be thinking, okay, well, that's mainly, uh, perhaps that's, that's one demographic. Maybe that's just older people. But actually, younger people are more lonely today than older people. One study is saying that according to the study by Cigna, young adults are twice as likely to be lonely than seniors. 79% of adults aged 18 to 24 today report feeling lonely compared to only 41% of seniors aged 66 and older. This is a pervasive problem in our culture. We struggle to make friends. We can't make or keep friends anymore. I was reading an article this past week from NBC News, and this uh, writer of uh, NBC said, uh, her name's Jen Glantz. She says, the year I turned 30 was the year I realized I didn't have friends. I was heading into a new decade of my life, feeling strong about my career, my life accomplishments, and my relationship with my partner. But when he asked me, who I wanted to invite to my birthday party, my mouth opened and I let out a long trail of ums, ums. The article says, with many people's lives running at full speed and in different directions, it's hard to slow down long enough to find and develop new friendships. It says we're more connected than ever on our devices, on, on social media. But finding someone in real life to connect with can be a challenge today. And so this is, this is her answer. This is the answer to her problem. This is what some people are turning to. As a gift to myself I, to prepare for a new decade, both in age and in life, I turned to a friendship coach, hoping that professional advice would help me make more genuine connections. A friendship coach. So now we need coaches to help us learn how to be friends. You know, it just made me think more about one of, the, I think, the great things the church has to offer is actual person-to-person social connection. And we're going to see, I think, more and more people show up at the church looking for that because they are lonely, because they're not finding connection, real face-to-face connection, which we were made for. We were designed to be in the presence of another person and to be friends. So as part of our mission, that's something we can be thinking about. Well, let's look at friendship. What, what sort of stands this, this friendship out, this, this is distinguishing marks of the friendship between Jonathan and David? Well, the first thing we see is that friendship is committed. One of the things we struggle with today is commitment in friendship, commitment to another person. <clears throat> and we see commitment between Jonathan and David. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. In the Hebrew, that word made a covenant is actually means cut a covenant. So when covenants were made in the ancient Near East, typically what would happen is you would take an animal and you'd cut the animal in half and put the animal in the pieces on the left and the right side. And you and the covenant partner would walk through the pieces of the animal Essentially vowing, if I break my end of the agreement, 
I'm, like, I'm going to be like these animal pieces on the ground. I will die. So they're making a commitment to one another. That they are together in this. They are going to work together. Their souls are knit together. And there is commitment toward one another. It's hard to have a good friend or have good friendship if you don't commit to each other. If there's nothing you actually give up and say, I will vow to this to be your friend. I will meet you at the coffee shop once a week to help you, to meet with you, to share my life with you. Right? There, there, it takes specific commitments we need to make. And they were committed to each other. Secondly, we see friendship is costly. It, it costs something to be a good friend. Look at verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. You see, perhaps this was a part of the covenant they were making toward each other. This was a sign of Jonathan's respect and honor to David. That Jonathan's love and covenant with David was at his own expense. He was next in line to be king. Think about this. Who's the son of the king here in this relationship? It's Jonathan. And so for him to do this, some people think that he was actually symbolically abdicating the kingship, his inheritance to David. And remember earlier on in 1 Samuel that they have already been told the prophecy that there is a friend, there's someone going to be, there's a neighbor that's going to be better than Saul who's going to take this kingship. So Jonathan knew, knew this, it's going to be someone else. So he's acknowledging at this point, he's not going to be the king, it's going to be David. He is giving up this to David. But what's so amazing is David was his political rival. He could have fought David. He could have hated David. Actually, Jonathan had more reason to hate David than Saul did. He had more to lose. Saul was already king. But Jonathan is saying, I'm I'm never going to be king. I'm giving it up to you. I'm, I'm stripping off of this, this tunic and this sword and this bow and this belt. He could have been very jealous of David but he wasn't. And so as we think about friendship and our own ability to be a good friend, are we content to step aside when it's time for others to be used by God? Are we content to be joyful for our friends when they are doing well? And to, and to not think of a relationship as transactional. I mean, many people look at relationships as transactional, like you do this for me and I will do something in return, but I'm not going to do anything for you unless you do something for me, that's a transactional relationship. It's not what we're looking at here. There is a cost to being a good friend. And so perhaps in this moment, Jonathan is acknowledging David's future reign by giving him his armor. One commentator says, the attitude of Jonathan, the crown prince, was thus remarkable and exhibits his unselfish character and personality. See, Jonathan gave while Saul took. Jonathan is giving. Another thing we see that makes a good friendship is, is closeness. Closeness. There's actually a scene um, in chapter 20, verse 41, where David and Jonathan are, are together, and um, this will be probably be the last time they see each other. Right? They know 
Uh, war is upon them. Saul is at an even worse state. And they will not probably see each other again. And they, it shows how close they were. Look how, how much they embraced. He says, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times to Jonathan. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. See, they loved each other. They were best friends. They allowed themselves to be vulnerable toward each other. And so the question for us is, do you allow yourself to be vulnerable with other people, to be exposed, to show, and this is hard for guys especially, show emotion, right? To say, I love you, right? Do you allow yourself to do that? I was reminded when I was in college, uh, this was after my first year at James Madison, I went on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ, and um, so Campus Crusade is a Christian ministry on campus, college campuses all around the country, and they have these summer projects where you go off for a summer, and you a lot of times you'll get a job, and you'll um, live kind of with a bunch of other college students, and you'll evangelize throughout the week. You'll go on the street and pass out gospel tracts and try to share the gospel with people. And I went to Los Angeles one summer. I went to Santa Monica and lived at a motel. We booked the entire motel out. It was, it was like 60 kids. Uh, college kids, and we spent the whole summer evangelizing and sharing the gospel and worshiping together and growing in our faith, getting jobs. And we formed, in such a quick way, we formed very close friendships because we were doing things that were out of our comfort zone, right? Talking to strangers on the street about Jesus, passing out tracts down at Third Street Promenade, and while people don't want to engage with you, in Southern California, people do not like to talk about religion. Right? They want to go buy their clothes. And, um, but So it bonded us together. And at the end of the summer, the night before everybody's about to get on their planes and go home, uh, something happened to us that I've never really experienced before. Emotion came over everybody, and we all wept together, knowing that we probably wouldn't all be together like this ever again. I've actually never experienced it since then, uh, an experience where you're just, you're so close to people and you just begin weeping knowing that you're going to depart each other. It was a sweet experience and we were all very vulnerable with each other. It was a blessing to have those friends that summer as I was growing in my faith and learning more about God. And so friendship is a blessing. It's something to be pursued. It's something to invest in as God's people. But think about it. What really brought Jonathan and David together? What, what did it? One commentator, Samura, says, the relationship between Jonathan and David was more th- than simply on the human level. Both of them loved and trusted on the Lord and shared the same concerns and convictions. The Lord is what brought them together. And so as we think about that as believers and members of this church, your most important relationships will be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because what binds you together is the most important truth in the world. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiving your sins. And it's regardless of age. The church is to be the place where we, where we mix ages and demographics and, and status goes out the window and we learn how to love one another. In a world where we're divided into our various camps, that goes away here. 
A Hebrew scholar, Chad Bird, actually says, we tend to think of these two friends, David and Jonathan, as close in age, but they were not. Jonathan was about 30 years older than David. Near the beginning of Saul's reign, his son, Jonathan, was already fighting, and Israelite men did not become soldiers until they were at least 20 years old. Saul reigned 40 years, and he and Jonathan died in the same battle. Thus, Jonathan was probably closer to 60 when he died, and David was about 30 at the time. This makes Jonathan all the more remarkable, doesn't it? He humbled himself to become this best friend with David, with this 30-year gap. And so, brothers and sisters, you need to invest in your fellow believers, fellow members of this church, and, and, and fellow Christians outside of this church, but the Christians he's placed in your life, they should be your priority. People should say to you and about you, you know, you tend to hang out with your church friends a lot. And your answer should be, yeah, I know. I've prioritized them because I vowed to them that I'll be in their lives and I'll love them. So do you love the people God has chosen to be in covenant with you? Have you vowed to love all the members of this church? Scotty Smith writes, It is dangerously easy to presume on our most vital friendships, to presume on them, take them for granted, investing less, giving into gradual heart drift, busyness, trumping connection, pretending, replacing vulnerability, shame, muting honesty. We're wise to acknowledge this and foolish to deny it. So, so don't let busyness Trump, the connection you're supposed to have with other believers. Don't let yourself pretend about your state. Just say, oh, I'm doing okay. I'm fine. Be vulnerable. Take a moment. Talk re- really, really about how you're doing with each other. And don't let shame mute your honesty. If you've got something to confess, if you've got something to, to, to bring to someone else that's on, weighing on your heart, Talk about it with someone you can trust and be honest. The hope is that you'll be able to do that here at this church because Christians, Christian friends show grace to each other. Why? Because we've been shown grace. We are intimately knowledgeable about grace. We should then share it with another person. Friendship, lastly, is, is given to us by God for the dark days. See, David, by God, is given Jonathan, not just for the easy, easy days, right? He's preparing him for the hard days, the dark days that are to come. And that's the second thing we're looking at, is the providence of opposition. The providence of opposition. And here we're going to look closely at Saul's growing hostility toward David. <clears throat> well, back in chapter 16, verse 21, we see that Saul actually had a love for David. He did love David at one point. He loved him greatly. Saul was in his um, court, and he would play the liar and, and ease him of his, the evil spirit that was upon him. He had affection for him. He had affection for him when he killed Goliath. But that affection went away until he started feeling insecure about his kingship. When David, he perceived David to be a threat to his rule. And his reign. It was because of David's success. Look at verse 7, and we see how this plays out in 
the Israelites at the time. So the women would come out of the city singing and receiving the, the troops as they were coming back from war. And they would sing a song. They would sing a song. And we just get a, a little snippet of the song. And it, is, and it says, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, Saul didn't necessarily have to take this the wrong way, but he did. Right? He could have seen them as equals. He could have seen them as, oh, you know, the ten thousands. David is, is killing is really, uh, it's, it, I'm the one who's helping that happen. He could have seen it in a, in a good light, but he didn't. Jealousy had consumed Saul. So he was insecure, right? He saw it as a threat. And so he, he was beginning to go after David. So let's now turn our attention to these relationships. So his two daughters and what's going on here. So you think you've ever had a hard time with your in-laws? Look at the difficulty David is having with his future father-in-law. So the first daughter that's brought forward, uh, and, and the reason Merab is brought forward to, to David is, is um, Saul wants, wants it to go poorly for David. He wants to be killed. He wants the Philistines to kill David. Look at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my daughter, elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. So for Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Actually, it's an echo of what we're going to read with Uriah and David. He sends Uriah to the front of the battle lines to be killed. But here we see what Saul is up to, right? He wants David to be out of the picture. And so he's bringing him, uh, his eldest daughter, Merab. But for some reason, at, when it's time after the battles are over to give Merab to David, what does he do? Nothing. Merab is not given to him. He's given to Adriel, this other guy, Adriel. And so then we, we get a picture of Michal, this other daughter of Saul, who loves David. And what's interesting is uh, one commentator says, this is a circumstance that's so unusual that it's the only instance in all of biblical narrative in which we are explicitly told that a woman loves a man. Isn't that interesting? So why? Why are we told that uh, Michal loves David? Well, I think what, it, what the narrator, what we're trying to really get at is that David is winning the hearts of everyone except Saul. He's getting the love of the people. He's getting the love of Jonathan, his son. He's getting now the love of Michal. Everyone is running toward David. And so what is the challenge then that Saul gives David for Michal's hand? Well, it's interesting. It's different. And I'll get to it in a second. But it brings up an interesting point that if you try to go to the Bible for the exact details of how to win a wife, you'll find some interesting cases. And so I found uh, this old blog post in my seminary uh, that this reminded me of, went through the different ways you could win a, get a wife in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy 21, you could be the person who finds an attractive prisoner of war. This is an aside, by the way. This is just for fun. You could find an attractive prisoner of war, bring her home, shave her head, trim her nails, and give her new clothes, and then she's yours. In Hosea, you could find a prostitute and marry her. If you're Moses, you could find a man with seven daughters and impress him by watering his flock. If you're Boaz, you can purchase a piece of property and get a woman as part of the deal. If you're the Benjaminites in Judges 21, you could go to a party and hide and when the women come out to dance, you grab one and carry her off to be your wife. Think about Adam. If you're Adam, you could have God create a wife for you while you sleep. But 
caution, this will cost you a rib. If you're Jacob, you could agree to work for seven years in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage and get tricked into marrying the wrong woman and then work another seven years for the woman you wanted to marry in the first place. That's right, 14 years for the toil for a wife. And then in our text, you could cut off 200 foreskins off the future, your future father-in-law's enemies and get his daughter for a wife. But I think actually the, the funniest one that they put here is you could be like Cain. And even if no one's out there, you just wander around a bit and you'll definitely find someone. That's what Cain did. But this is interesting. So, so he has to go <coughs> kill these Philistines for McCall's hand in marriage. We'll go over to verse 27. <clears throat> it says, David rose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. So he was asked to kill 100, but he actually kills 200. And he brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. And, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And so we see that this doesn't solve the problem, winning his daughter. It helps David out. Right now he's actually intermarried into the royal family but it only increases Saul's hatred and anger. You see, Saul first begins with jealousy of David, and then it leads to fear, and then it leads to anger, and then it leads to hatred, and murderous hatred. But it starts with jealousy. He could not praise the achievement of others, but simply became jealous of them. It gets worse and worse. But notice David. And throughout this whole story, notice there is no retaliation on David's part. That is a theme that will continue through 1 Samuel. He never takes his opportunity to wipe David, to wipe Saul off the map because he has such respect for God's anointed. He doesn't retaliate. What we see in David is that there is a quiet trust in God, quiet trust in his providence. He shows amazing respect for Saul even as Saul spirals and spirals and spirals down. Even when Saul attempts to kill David two times. It just says David evades him. It doesn't say David uh, was scared. It doesn't say David uh, said anything about Saul. He just evaded him. But maybe David was reminding himself that without God's mercy, all sinners will follow Saul to the same fate. That We need God's grace. So brothers and sisters, God brings opposition into our lives. It's true. He brought the blessing for David, but he also is bringing the opposition. Why? Why does God do that? Well, one of the major reasons is he wants us to rely and trust on him more. He's preparing David for a lot of difficulty moving forward. He's re- preparing David for difficulty with the Philistines, difficulty with <clears throat> his son Absalom in the future. He strengthens our reliance upon him. And secondly, he does it to heighten our sensitivity to his presence, his presence. And that's our final providence that we look at this this morning, the providence of the presence of God. You see, as I said earlier, David is finding success. He's on the increase and Saul is going down. Look at verse five. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. And we read that David had success in all his undertakings. 
while Saul began to find Pharaoh. What was the difference? What made the difference? The difference was that God was with him. That God was present with him. Look at verse 12. Why? For the Lord was with him. Verse 14, Saul was afraid of David because why? The Lord was with him, but had departed Saul. You see, the Lord was protecting David from Saul with his schemes. And he maybe didn't always notice God's protection. And so the question for us is, is it possible that much of God's protection and providence is completely unknown to you? I think it is often unknown to me of how God's protecting me, how he's providing for me. I don't think about it often when I need to. Right? I need to rest. I need to reflect upon his providence and protection of the ways he's He's been with me as he's been with David and is with David. And for the Christian, we know this even more than David knew it because we have Christ. That in Christ, God is with us. That is his name. Remember in Matthew 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. We have God with us, if you're a believer. And you know, as we think about this chapter, typically David is the one who points forward to Jesus. But actually, I think it's Jonathan that points forward to Christ more so in this chapter and what he did, what he gave up for David. He gave up his kingship. He gave up his rights. He gave up this idea that he was going to be exalted for David. That Christ is that better Jonathan, actually, in this chapter. That friend that paid the ultimate cost to save us. I'll read again from Philippians 2 that I read earlier. This reminder of what Jesus gave up for us. Philippians 2 Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, skipping down, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ emptied himself. Just as Jonathan emptied himself, took off these royal robes and gave to David, Christ does the same for you and I as we look to him in faith. Taking off, emptying himself of that glory. And also Christ faced the greatest opposition for us. If if we face opposition in our lives as God's providence, Christ faced more of an opposition. He faced the very wrath of God on the cross for you and I. Which is the greatest opposition you could think of. That Christ became sin. He took on our sin for for us. He took on the wrath of God. And he also finally gave us his presence by having God's presence removed from Christ. Christ had God's presence removed from him so that you and I could have a God who's present with us. 
In John 14, Jesus reminds us of this, that when he departs and goes to the Father, he's telling the disciples, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It's what we read actually this morning from our call to worship. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We have the providence of God's presence, brothers and sisters, to lead you, to walk with you. And in closing, what does that give us? It gives us hope, doesn't it? A popular benediction we do here at Hope is Romans fifteen thirteen. And notice the providence of the Holy Spirit and what it provides. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That's what God's providence should give us his presence. So be reminded that he gives us friendship for a reason. He gives us even opposition to draw us closer to him and most importantly, his presence to remind us that he loves his people. May that encourage you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being with us, blessing us, showing us yourself. We thank you for your word It teaches us more about what we need ultimately. Keep our eyes focused on you, Father. We need you. Help us to grow in the knowledge of our need, our dependence, and the presence of God. Help us to walk faithfully in that as we go forward, proclaiming your name, living as sinners, but sinners who have a Savior and who promises to change us and grow us. We thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen.